0: Peace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. I just want to say thank you all. Um, I was on a very long hiatus. I could have sworn that I had a podcast up last month, but the last podcast was in November, and my apologies. So welcome back to the Encyclopedia Challenge. I, I just cannot believe it's already 2023 and it's already halfway through January. It's January 15th of 2023 already. So I just want to say thank you to those of you who are patient with me, to my regular listeners who were twiddling their thumbs and stomping their feet and just like wondering where in the world is the new podcast because we need to get through the encyclopedias. We are still in A's. What's going on? And I just have to just apologize. Uh, just things happened. I'm not able to get into it. It would be, it would take about a month's worth of podcasts just to get into it and explain what what was going on and what's still going on. But uh, I missed everyone. I missed this podcast. So I wanted to at least get in, get back in the groove of it. And again, uh, my apologies on that. This is season one, episode eighty four. So, to recap, episode 83 was uh, Angle Through Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. Um, So, that was episode 83. If you missed any podcasts um, or just want to recap anything, uh, feel free to visit my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. Again, that is The, T-H-E, Oak, O-A-K, Tree, T-R-E-E, journeys. J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-S dot com. And select Encyclopedia Challenge in the tab. Or you can even browse my books. And the the homepage has my books. But if you want to listen to any of the podcasts, uh, go to Encyclopedia Challenge. And there is also a list of all of the words that we've been over. If there's ever a word that you're wondering how to spell, because not all of these are spelled how they are pronounced, That's where you want to go because I have a list of all of the words there. So this is Season 1, Episode 84. And again, I want to thank you for joining me. If you are new, you might be wondering what the Encyclopedia Challenge is. And that's a fair question. The Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to you. Our main source is the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And we do go to another source every now and then, and today we will go in there one time, and that is the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So before we begin uh, our words, which is why you're here, you want to hear the encyclopedia entries. You don't want to hear me going on and on and on about an apology, but uh, before we get into the words, uh, I do want to do the quote of the month. I know it's halfway through the month, so we won't be in this quote, uh, but I believe three times. Okay, so in this this quote is by John Cumming. He was an English preacher who lived from 1807 to 1881. And I love what he says. Uh, if you have ever felt like you just aren't worth anything, uh, that your life... Life would just go on. No one would miss you. If you ever feel worthless, uh, this quote is for you. And, and even if you haven't felt worthless, um, but maybe just a few moments of your life, a few seconds, this quote's still for you. This quote is fantastic. I love it. As soon as I saw it, I was like, wow, that's awesome. So he said, minute events are the hinges on which magnificent results turn. In a watch, the smallest link, chain, ratchet, cog, or crank is as essential as the mainspring itself. If one fall out, the whole will stand still. So just think about that for a minute. I'll give you some time to think about it. We're also going to talk about a book. I am going to review two more children's books in this episode at the very, very end. Uh, so you don't have to stick around for that, and it's going to be a very short review. It's not going to be like the last review, at all. And I'll reveal those books later. But yeah, just let that sink in just a little bit. If if you are gone, like in in "It's a Wonderful Life," you ha- your your life has an impact on other people. So just think about that for a minute, and let's take a short break. And when we get back, we'll go into the first four encyclopedia entries. back. Our first four encyclopedia entries are all from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and those are Anglomania, Anglo-Saxon Language and Literature, Anglo-Saxons, and Angola. So let's start with number one Anglomania. Anglomania in German literature And Anglomania was especially prevalent in the 18th century when translations of English books became numerous and were read with great admiration. The Germans have ascribed the sentimental and affected style of some parts of their literature to the influence of the English literature of last century. But the Anglomania was harmless in comparison with the Gallomania, or imitation of French literature and customs, which prevailed in Germany in the time of Frederick II of Prussia, and was developed in the writings of Wieland. A remarkable Anglomania prevailed in France for some time before the Revolution. It arose out of political considerations and admiration of English free institutions, but extended to trifles even of fashions and manners and often became ridiculous. And every time I see the word ridiculous, I'm sure you can understand where my mind goes. Ridiculous. Number two, Anglo-Saxon Language and Literature. And this one's rather lengthy. I didn't count the pages, um, but I know that in if we were reading this from the Encyclopedia Americana, it would be about 10 giant pages. So this one is just... About three and a half small pages with really small print. But not near, nearly as much as, as the uh, Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So let's look at Anglo-Saxon Language and Literature. A quite modern term for an ancient stage in the development of the English tongue. The ruling race in England before the Norman Conquest, not knowing itself by any other name than Anglisk or English. Mr. Freeman, Professor Stubbs, and other scholars of the present day, remember this is 1909, argue stoutly for a return to the old and true name, and to all appearance the abolition of Anglo-Saxon and the restoration of English is only a question of time. English is one of the low German family of Teutonic languages. We do not know it in its earliest form, Some centuries elapsed after the invasions of the 5th century before any literature was produced or recorded. During this time, the dialectic differences of the various Low German tribes who had come into the island were probably diminishing while separation from their kinsmen on the continent must, on the other hand, have tended to develop new peculiarities. The result is that the very oldest English is far from the same as the very oldest dialects of Low German in the coast regions between the Rhine and the Baltic, but it most nearly resembles the Old Saxon of Rhenish Prussia and Westphalia, and the Old Dutch and the Old Frisian of the provinces of Holland, and to the last of these it has the closest affinity. It is not to be supposed, however, that at any time before 1066, Englishmen spoke or even wrote a single dialect. There is evidence of at least two being used, a northern and a southern, and an Auglian by the people of Northumbria, and a Saxon by the people of Wessex. The former is the more primitive, and as Mr. Kington Oliphant points out from sources of Standard English in 1873, pages 35 through 40, has more in common with Old Norse and Frisian than its southern sister. An example the infinitive ends not in the n of Wessex English, but in a. The history of England during the six hundred years before the Norman conquest accounts both for the antiquity of the Northumbrian literature and for the subsequent triumph of the Wessex dialect. In the seventh and eighth centuries, Northumbria was the strongest, the most civilized, and the most learned of the English states. Christianity had poured its benign influences over it in double measure. Paulinus and Aden, Rome and Iona, had both striven successfully against the paganism, and light flowed over the land. Caedmon and Bede and Halkion were all Northumbrians. That so little of this Northumbrian literature has come down to us is owing to the destruction of the northern monasteries by the Danes. The influence of Alfred, king of the West Saxons, and the unification of government in the island under his, under his successors, gave the dialect of Wessex an irresistible supremacy, so much so that even most of the early northern literature only survives in a southern dress. An example we can read, Cademan only in a Wessex version of the 10th century. Yet so strong was the impression left on its neighbor by the Anglian state that not even the havoc made by the Danes of its literary monuments and its political prosperity could prevent its name from being given to the island the people, and the tongue. Wessex English, then, that is the English of the court, of books, and probably in great measure of the schools, prevailed in England far more, or excuse me, I'm sorry, for more than 150 years before the Norman conquest, and is substantially what we mean when we speak of the Anglo-Saxon language. There is no reason to suppose that it ever superseded the dialect of the North, for ordinary purposes of intercourse. Anglian lived in the mouths of the people and in later times has won an immortal fame in literature under the name of Lowland Scotch. Cademan and Burns both used it, though in the unapproachable verse of the Ayrshire Bard it has become utterly inorganic and so remains. English then, before the conquest, differs from modern English in being an inflected language. Its inflections are not so rich or various or euphonious as those of Latin or Greek or Mesogothic, that oldest and noblest of the low German dialects, but they are still sufficient to give it a distinct character and to make it strange and almost unintelligible at first sight to one whose reading does not go back beyond Shakespeare. Its nouns can be grouped into declensions and classified according to gender, and faint traces of the terminations are preserved in the English of the present day. The en in children and oxen is the old an of the plural in nouns of the first declension. The s and es, the old as, marking the plural of masculines of the third. Adjectives have both a definite and indefinite form. The article is as complete as in Greek, though everything has now vanished, but a fragment of the neuter, that, the, or the modern the, t-h-e, some mo- Some mutilated remains of phenomenal inflection still survive to puzzle (laughs) schoolboys and delight the lovers of horror antiquity. And that's H-O-A-R antiquity. Verbs are divided into strong and weak conjunctions, as is still the case in German. The distinction between the indicative and uh, subjunctive moods, though slight, is real, And we have not only an infinitive in a-n or an, but a gerund in e-n-n-e, while the present participle... I know how to pronounce this. I promise I do. Um, I'm not... Okay, participle... Yeah, okay. And e-n-d-e is not confused with the verbal noun in u-n-g as is unhappily the case with us who have made I-N-G do duty for both. Of late years, the study of the English tongue, particularly in its early, earliest stage, has become almost popular, and grammatical works are now numerous. Among others, we may mention Anglo-Sikor Grammatic von E. Sievers in 1886, English translation by A.S. Cook, 2nd edition, 1899, F.A. March, Comparative Grammar of the Anglo-Saxon Language, 1870, Anglo-Saxon Readers of H. Sweet, 7th edition, 1897, and J.W. Bright, 3rd edition, 1894, and E. Matzner's English Grammatic, 3rd volume, 3rd edition, 1880. excuse me. In a rapid survey of English literature before the conquest, one naturally looks to the north for the earliest examples. The ruins, graven upon the Ruthwell Cross, set up about 680, are now proved from the inscription itself to be the composition of Cademan and are the very oldest relic of Anglian poetry. Here, Cademan speaks his own speech, not as in his other poems, speaking through a Wessex version. Other and later monuments of Northumbrian English are a Psalter 800, the Rushworth Gospels 900, the uh, Lindisfarne Gospels 970, but the great body of this early literature, whether produced in Northumbria or Mercia or Wessex, has come down to us only in the dialect of the last of these states. Therefore, in referring to it, not the antiquity of the manuscripts, but the other, but the author comes into view. Much of it is poetical; the verse is alliterative, as in the Norse and oldest German poetry. And only in some of the later poems is there a beginning of rhyme. The epic or narrative poems are remarkable for superabundance of often re- recurring epithets, bold metaphors, and a certain pomp and magnificence of style. Of the genuine heroic poetry, however, there are few remains, the principal one being the poem of, every school person knows this, <laughs> um, Beowulf. So the poem of Beowulf is included in this, a work which must have been composed before the Angles and Saxons quitted their original seats on the continent. Other pieces produced in Germany, though surviving in only an English form, are The Traveler's Song and The Battle of Finsburg. The introduction of Christianity gave a religious character to Anglo-Saxon poetry, and many narrative poems are extant on religious subjects, some of which may be seen in the Codex Occidentenissus, edited by Thorpe, that's London in 1842, the Song of Cademan, C. Cademan, preserved in Alfred's translation of Bede, has been edited by both Junius and Thorpe, An a metrical paraphrase of the parts of the Holy Scriptures ascribed to the same author has found editors in Thorpe in 1832, Butterwick from 1847 to 1854, Grine in 1858. Cademan is said by Bede to have died about 680, so that both of the works in question must belong to the 7th century. Two poems from the Codex, which Dr. Bloom discovered at Versilli in 1832, have been edited by Jacob Grimm, uh, that's Castle in 1840, under the title of Andreas und Elin, A Poetical Calendar of the Saints by Fox, that's London, 1830, and A Version of the Psalms by Thorpe, London in 1835. Among the most important prose works are the Laws, Civil and Ecclesiastical, from the time of Ethelbert of Kent to that of Canute, of which the best edition is in Thorpe's Ancient Laws and Institutes of England. That's London, 1840. Of historical works are Alfred's translations of Orosius and Bede and the Chronicle carried on by different hands to 1154, of which the best edition, at least down to the conquest, is Prices in the Monumenta Historica Britannica, 1848, an earlier one being that of Ingram, that's London, 1823, it is in the province of theology that English literature before the conquest is most rich, abounding particularly in legends and homilies. A collection of homilies made by Bishop Alfric has been published by the Elfric Society, two volumes, London, 1847, a society instituted in 1843 for the promotion of the knowledge of the England and English language of those times. Alfred did much to enrich it with translations and began a translation of the Bible. He translated the first seven books, the Book of Job and the Apocryphal Gospel of Nicodemus. Also a fragment of a poem on the history of Judith, of great celebrity, that's Oxford 1698, the Durham Book, or St. Cuthbert's Book, a very famous manuscript now in the British Museum, contains an interlinear gloss of the Gospels in the East Anglian dialect, the text being Probably of the 8th and the Gloss of the 10th century. Alfred translated the work of Bothius, De Consolatine Philosophia. The opinions of Englishmen before the conquest on astronomy, natural philosophy, and medicine are exhibited from their works by Wright in treatises on sciences written during the Middle Ages. That's London, 1841. In Turner's History of the Anglo Saxons, three volumes, 7th edition, 1852. Compare also Thorpe's An Electa Anglo Saxonica, Marsh's Origin and History of the English Language and the Early Literature It Embodies in 1862, and Grind's Bibliothek der Anglo Saxon Pulsi um, from 1857 to 1861, and his, I think that's Bibliothek the Angels, Prosa, 1864 see English language, English literature. And I'm gonna pause for one second and grab a drink of water. Because entry number three is rather lengthy as well. We did Anglo-Saxon language and literature. Now we're on Anglo-Saxons. So number three is Anglo-Saxons. Collective name generally given by historians to the various Teutonic or German tribes which settled in England, chiefly in the 5th century and founded the kingdoms of the Heptarchy. They consisted for the most part of Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. (coughs) And that's J-U-T-E-S. The general opinion is that the first of these invaders made their appearance in Britain in 449, having Hengist and Horsa as their leaders. But under the more searching scrutiny of later writers, these famous leaders have evaporated into mythical heroes of romance common to most of the Germanic nations. And though the fact of a great Germanic invasion in the middle of the 5th century is not doubted, it is believed that this was by no means the earliest period at which Germanic settlements were effected in England. Long previous to this period, a portion of the coast extending from Portsmouth to Wales in Norfolk was known as the Littus Saxonicum, But whether in reference to Saxons by whom it was settled, or to roving adventurers of that race by whom it was ravaged, is still a subject of dispute. Of the three tribes mentioned above, the Jutes are believed to have been the first comers. Their original settlements were in what is now the district of Schleswig, and the portions of England of which they possessed themselves were Kent the Isle of Wight, that's W-I-G-H-T, and the opposite coast of Hampshire. The Saxons, who were the next invaders, settled chiefly in the southern and sen- central parts of England, in Sussex, Essex, Middlesex, the south of Hortford, Surrey, the part of Hampshire, not possessed by the Jutes, Berks, Wilts, Dorset, Somerset, Devon, and the portion of Cornwall, which did not remain in the possession of its former Celtic inhabitants. The Saxons who invaded England probably belonged chiefly to the portion of that great nation, or confederacy of nations, whose territories lay on the shores of the Baltic, occupying what are now the district of Holstein, the north of Hanover, and the west of Mecklenburg. The third tribe, whose name and nationality afterwards was prevailed over the others, the Angles, did not arrive till a somewhat later period, coming like the Jutes from the district of Schleswig, a corner of which is still called Engel, Engelin. They made uh, let's see here. Okay, so from five twenty-seven to five forty-seven, they made a su- succession of descendant. De- oh, I'm sorry, descents on the coasts of Suffolk and Norfolk, and laterally on the country to the north of the Humber in the south part of Scotland between the Tweed and the Forth. Eventually, the Angles obtained possession of the whole of England. The Angles obtained. Let's see, except the portions already mentioned. That is to say, of all the part of the north of the Avon, on the one side, and the Thames on the other, Essex, Middlesex, and part of Hertford excepted. The union of different bands of these conquerors among themselves with their countrymen who had preceded them, and with the Celtic population which, though conquered, there is no reason to suppose, was exterminated, gave rise to the so-called Heptarchy, the kingdoms of Northumbria, originally Bernicia and Daria. Kent, Sussex, Wessex, Essex, East Anglia, and Mercia. The various independent states into which England had had until then been divided were united by Egbert, King of Wessex, in 827, into the one kingdom of England, the land of the Angles. The royal family of Wessex, which was thus raised to what for the first time probably is entitled to be called the Kingly Dignity, "...never again lost its supremacy except indeed during the Danish period, and that was from 1017 to 1042, to the Norman Conquest, and to it Alfred the Great belonged. The English constitution, the origin of which is sometimes ascribed to Alfred from 849 to 901, was not framed by him, though he restored it and improved it after the deliverance of the country from the Danes. It was essentially the same as that of other Germanic nations." At the head of the government was the Signing or saying the kingly office among the Germanic nations in early times had reference solely to the tribes or peoples governed, and never to the land which they occupied. During this period it was naturally elective, but after the idea of great territorial possessions came to be inseparable from it, it became hereditary, though a form of election or color of ascertaining the national will was still retained. The life of the king, like that of every other man, was assessed at a fixed price, which was that of an altheling or person of royal blood with a sum superadded as the price of his royalty. The first of these sums went to his family, the second to the people. The king possessed the power of calling together the witten of laying before them propositions for the public will. That's W-E-A-L. But he had not the power of dismissing the assembly, so that in England, from the first, the real centre of power seems to have been in Parliament. Neither was the con- convocation of the Wittingamot at the option of the sovereign, for there is every reason to believe that his power was all along limited by the necessity of consulting the principal members, both of the clergy and the laity of the kingdom. Nor, it would seem, could he impose taxes or declare peace or war without their consent. The sons and other near relations of the king constituted an aristocracy of birth called Ethelings or Othelings, the same word with the German ADEL, Noble. Out of the great officers of the state or, immediately, or immediate servants of the king was gradually formed a hereditary aristocracy, closely corresponding to that which subsequently existed in feudal times. Of these, the person next in rank to the king was the alderman or elderman or, or senator or heretoga, army leader, but inasmuch as the ducal functions in the Anglo- Anglo-Saxon polity were by no means confined to service in the field, the peculiar title of heretoga is very rarely met with being for the most part replaced by elderman or alderman which denotes civil as well as military preeminence, And that was from Kimball, um, I think page 126. Though the word is derived from an adjective signifying age, in practice, no such meaning attached to it more than to senior, which is the original form of the word senior. It was to the same class of officials that subsequently the Danish title of earl, came to be applied. The powers of these officers probably varied in the different kingdoms, while they remained separated, but we shall form, on the whole, an accurate conception of the position of the elderman, if we regard him as the governor of the Ga, or Shire, the Skir Skir, Skir- or Sheriff, being his deputy. Much difference of opinion exists as to the rank and position social and political of the Thane, and all that can be said with confidence is that before the conquest, it was not convertible with elderman or equivalent to baron as it came to be after the conquest. The office seems to have been implied subordinate sub-ordin- landed tenure similar to that by which the lands of the vassal were held of the lord in feudal times, and thus, while the king's thanes were frequently eldermen, these in turn had thanes of a lower rank. Well, this is length, lower lank, uh, I'm not sure if that's lank or rank, uh, who appear to have been very numerous. This view is strengthened by the derivation of the term from Theogen or thanian Thin- to serve which is the same word as the modern German Dienen, and from the fact of its being frequently translated minister in the Latin charters of pre-Norman times. The whole class of ordinary freemen or commoners were called curls, Afterwards, churls—a word preserved in the German "curl" and in the Lowland Scotch "carl"—and were generally associated under the protection of some person or rank and influence who was called the halford, our lord, but liter- liter- literally breadwinner, or rather bread beginner. This, however, was in itself no recognized title, and up to a very late period, the Anglo-Saxon laws knew no other distinction than that of curl or earl. The Britons, who retained some degree of freedom, constituted a lower class called Wilhoss or Welsh, uh, literally foreigners, as they seemed to the conquerors. The number of slaves, Theowos, was not very great, nor does the character of the servitude imposed on them seem, comparatively speaking, to have been oppressive. Different rights and privileges belonged to the different ranks of the Saxon people, and as if we And, as we have already said, a different vettergild or Canary estimation was fixed for each rank as the penalty for homicide. The great districts or shires were subdivided into tithings, each containing ten free heads of families who were held mutually responsible for each other. Ten tithings formed a hundred, which had a court subordinate to the court of the shire, in important matters, the eldermen of the Shire could not decide without the concurrence of an assembly, uh, which was considered the Assembly of the Shire, of Thanes of the Shire representatives of townships, which met half yearly and corresponded to the Vitangamont Assembly of the Wise, or the Assembly of the Great for the whole kingdom. And I'm going to pause for just a second and say every time I see the word Shire, I think of Lord of the Rings. And I'm wondering if that's where he got the term Shire. I know there's different terms. Never mind. So just Shire, Lord of the Rings is where my mind goes. But let's continue on. We have one more paragraph for Anglo-Saxons. Christianity was introduced among the newcomers in the end of the 6th or beginning of the 7th century by St. Augustine, a missionary sent by Pope Gregory I, Called the Great. Augustine became the first Archbishop of Canterbury, and before the close of the 7th century, the whole of Ingla Land was a Christian country under one metropolitan. Ethelbert, King of Kent, was the first sovereign who embraced the Christian doctrine. Bringing with them the traditions and feelings of the empire, the whole influence of the clergy was thrown into the scale of monarchy and greatly tended to its consolidation. A Christian church, however, already existed in Scotland and the north of England, and the influence of the Coldees long prevailed against the efforts of the southern prelates to establish uniformity of worship and complete conformity to Rome. But in truth, the English clergy in general were not very submissive to the authority of the popes, who did not succeed in reducing the land to complete subjection till after a long struggle. St. Dunstan gained for them their final victory in the 10th century, During the time of its comparative independence, the English church was distinguished for the learning and laboriousness of its clergy. Bede is the most eminent author whom it produced. Between his time and that of Alfred, a very great degeneracy had taken place both in the learning and efficiency of the clergy, which that active and enlightened sovereign labored to restore, but with only partial success. Saint Boniface, and many other English and Scottish missionaries labored with success in the propagation of Christianity in Germany. Besides the works already referred to, see Freeman's history of the Norman Conquest and Old English history, and Green's histories, especially his making of England in 1882. So that's all you did not know about Anglo-Saxons. that uh, You didn't know, you didn't know. <laughs> okay, and number four before break. is Angola. Angola. And in the Encyclopedia Americana of nineteen fifty six, which which we're not gonna read, but Angola in that one is called Portuguese West Africa. So let's let's read about Angola. Name out often applied to the whole of the West African coast from Cape Lopez de Gonsalvo, latitude zero degrees forty four feet south, to San Felipe de Benguela 12 degrees 14 feet south, but in a more restricted sense, the name of a kingdom in Lower Guinea dependent upon Portugal and extending from the River Cunin on the south 17 degrees 20 feet south to latitude 6 degrees south. The natives generally call it Donga. The interior is very imperfectly known and the boundaries uncertain. The country being well watered is covered with a most luxuriant vegetation. The heat being moderated by the sea breeze, the orange and other fruits of the warmer temperate climates are produced as well as those which are strictly tropical. There is a great abundance and variety of wild animals, and the mouths of the rivers swarm with sharks and crocodiles. The principal rivers are the Kwanza and Danda. Much of the country is mountainous. The mountains are covered with forests and are rich in metals, particularly copper, iron, and silver which with coffee and rubber are the principal exports. The great trade until recently was in slaves. Fetishism is the prevailing superstition, and circumcision is general among the natives. Angola might easily be tendered, excuse me, I'm sorry, rendered very productive both of sugar and cotton, but the manner in which it has been governed by the Portuguese has not uh, tended to develop its resources. And remember, this is in 1909. They discovered it in 1486 and have had settlements in it since 1488. But the number of resident Portuguese is very small and they are almost entirely confined to a few spots, forts, and commercial establishments called ferris or fairs. The capital is Luanda or San Paula in, excuse me, I'm sorry, San Paula de Luando. The population in the early 1900s was 484,800. And with that, let's go on a much-needed break for both of us. Our next set of four entries are Angan, Angora, Angora, and Gornal, or N'Gornu. Okay, so number five is Engen. Barbed spear used by many early nations. The Franks in the 7th century employed Angans both for thrusting and hurling. The staves were armed with iron so as to leave but little of the wood uncovered. The head had two barbs. When hurled or thrust at an opponent, the head of the Angan became fixed in the flesh by means of the barbs. This form of spear was largely adopted by the Anglo-Saxon and other Teutonic nations. Number six Angora Angora uh, denoting a long fine white silky hair produced by goats so named So goat hair <laughs> and number seven is, a, is the uh is another Angora spelled exactly the same. This is the Ansira of the Ancients, a town capital of the Turkish vilayet of the same name in the mountainous interior of Asia Minor distant from the Constantinople, about 220 miles east-southeast. It is said to have been built by Midas, son of Phrygian Gordius, was a flourishing city under the Persians, became the capital of the Gallic sages, who settled in Asia Minor about BC 277, was a principal seat of eastern trade under the Romans, and was made the capital of the Roman province of Galatia Prima. It was the scene of one of the early churches of Galatia and the scene of two Christian councils held respectively 314 and 358. A decisive battle between the Turks and Tatars was fought near Angora in 1402 in which Timur defeated and took prisoner the Sultan Bajazet I. A temple of white marble was erected by the citizens of Ensara to the Emperor Augustus who had greatly beautified the city and his deeds were recorded in inscriptions upon a number of tablets in the columns of an altar. One of these inscriptions, the Marmor and Serenum, discovered by Boosberg in 1553, is important for the elucidation of ancient history. Angora is famous for its breed of goats, there we go, so, which have silky hair about eight inches long from which mohair goods are made, or mohair goods are made. The skins make nice carriage mats and are used for the manufacture of fine Morocco leather. These goats are hardy, yield a good quality of flesh and milk, are adapted to elevated and rocky regions, and will thrive on rather coarse herbage. They were introduced into the United States about 1848, and small numbers have since been kept principally at the South. They have not become popular, though, now attracting considerable interest. Oh, they they have not become popular though now attracting considerable interest. Actually, I have to say that um I've heard that goat scaping has become quite popular on uh, the past few years. I don't know if it if it's dwindled, but I've heard heard that uh, some people just make a lot of money doing goat Uh Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, they are kept in some parts of Australia, and there are approximately five million in South Africa. Population of the Villette about eight hundred ninety-two thousand nine hundred, of the town about thirty-six thousand. I love how they talk about the goats, then they go on to people. So that was people. Uh, right, and number eight before break. That this seems really short. So before we get to number eight though, let's just pause for for a moment. And if you remember the last time we met, uh in episode eighty-three. Uh, I mentioned these Christian Warrior notebooks by Zouf Zereshadi, and I meant to last month reveal that that was actually me. And I had made a joke uh, in the last podcast that, "Hey, you know, Zuf, you, you you hear that we want a prayer journal?" Uh, that was that was a that was a joke that I was going to reveal last month. So that's me. And yes, there is a Christian Warrior. 52-week prayer journal posted. And I do have the uh, website. It's through Lulu. So through Lulu.com. But I do have the link um, to that. Uh, It's uh, for Christian Warrior Notebooks. So under Zerushidea, or I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, you'll find Christian Warrior Notebooks on Lulu.com. And I do have the link in the description of this podcast. I believe the link is also in the last podcast we did, episode 83. So feel free to uh, browse. If you uh, are looking for a prayer journal, uh, please please get one. I've got several different kinds. Um, There are some with 224 pages. Uh, There are some with over 500. There are some with over 700 pages. It depends on how much you like to write. Now, they're all the same. Uh, right now, uh, they, they have, I put in their uh, Bible verses. Uh, there's at least one Bible verse per week plus a prayer prompt um, that I created uh, based off of those Bible verses of the week. And there are also fasting opportunities. Um, and if you're not interested in a prayer journal or you're just not ready to do something like that, there are notebooks. You know, If you want to take notes or, uh, or you want to give a gift. I have all kinds of notebooks, Christian warrior notebooks on there. I've got uh, some with names of God, some with just uh, Bible verses and little sayings and uh, quotes from other people. So uh, just uh, check it out if you want. Uh, There are different colors. There's a coil bound, uh, which I still call spiral bound, but I think it's it's called coil bound on Lulu. I'm not really sure what the difference is other than, than the names. Um, and, uh, there, there are just regular soft cover. I do have, I believe, one hard cover, I think it's one hard cover, uh, prayer journal in there. I don't believe I've got another hard cover, um, uh, notebook, but I do have a hard cover prayer journal, and I thought it was really important to have a hard cover, um, uh, because sometimes, I, I really like, I love journals, I love prayer journals, um, and I do like the soft covers, but there's something different about having a hardcover as a prayer journal. But that, that might just be me. The hardcover only has 224 pages, I believe. So why don't you, why don't you check it out? You know, they make great gifts. I gave some, uh, to my niece and nephews and, uh, to my cousin, or one of my cousins, and, uh. And yeah, just uh, check it out if you will. And my, oh, and the link is also on my website. So if you go to theoaktreejourneys.com, uh and you you're on the home screen, uh, there are links to the various books, and that the notebooks, the Christian Warrior notebooks, is one of those links. My grandfather's book is another link. Um, but yes, I wanted to to reveal that, and uh, I had a pl- whole plan. Uh, to reveal it, and I uh forgot to write it down for today, so there's the reveal <laughs> so number eight uh, is Anggorno or In or Norgum Gornu or It's a town of Bornu, and if you're from that town, and I'm butchering the name, my deepest apologies, I believe I've said this before whenever someone says Appalachian instead of Appalachian. Yes, Appalachian is correct, however, that's the first clue that you're not from here, is if you say Appalachia, because it's Appalachia. So Appalachia may be right in the dictionary or encyclopedia, but it is incorrect for those of us living in this area. Uh, So you can definitely tell I'm not from Bornu by the way I'm pronouncing the town. So my apologies on that, but it's a town of Bornu in Central Africa, on the southwest bank of Lake Chad, fifteen miles southeast from Kukawa. The surrounding country is very level and monotonous, but fertile. The waters of Lake Tchad are, I'm sorry, to are usually some miles distant from the town. Yet the whole intervening plain is sometimes covered with water, and the town itself is liable to destructive. Nations. It is a place of considerable commercial importance. The principal articles of trade are cotton, amber, coral, and metals. The population is supposed to be around 30,000. So with that, uh, we'll go to break, and when we come back, we will be on number 9, so entry number 9 when we get back from break. Welcome back. Our next set of four words, which are numbers nine through twelve, are Angostura, or Ciudad Boulevard, or Bolivar, Angostura Bark Angolium, and Angolium, comma Charles de Valois, Duke de. So number nine is Angostura or Ciudad. Bolivar which was a sea, which is a seaport of Venezuela latitude 8 degrees 8 feet north longitude 63 degrees 55 feet west on the right bank of Orinoco about 240 miles from its mouth it is built at a point or pass where on both sides the river is narrowed by rocks to a width of 3134 feet after having measured three miles across at thrice the distance from the sea. The site of Angostura is only 191 feet above the sea level, an elevation which on the intermediate distance as above yields an average of less than 10 inches to the mile. In fact, the bottom of the river in front of the town is lower than the surface of the sea, for even in the lowest state of the water it is said to be 200 feet deep, with a margin for floods to the amount of 50 or 60 feet more. Under these circumstances, the bed of the stream must be about 250 feet under the level of the city or about 60 feet under the level of the sea. When the river does rise to its highest, there are at least portions of the city inundated. Inundated, there we go. It enjoys in proportion to its latitude a singularly temperate climate. The situation of Angostura is highly favorable in a commercial view. The basin of the Orinoco... Which lies nearly all above the town is particularly rich towards the north. On that side, it reaches very nearly to the coastline, so as to comprise some of the best parts of Venezuela. Towards the south, it consists in a great measure of boundless plains traversed by countless herds of cattle. Over the whole of this vast basin, and almost equally in both directions, the main stream and its affluents are, with hardly any interruptions, navigable to the near foot of the mountains, and. Angostura is one of Venezuela's chief ports, although so far from the mouth of the Orinoco. It was founded in 1764 in place of an older town 115 miles higher up the river. The name was changed to Ciudad Boulevard in 1819. The population was 12,000. So that's not very many. (laughs) And that is the early 1900s. Number 10. Angostura bark, or Angostura bark, Uh, it's an aromatic bitter bark of certain trees of the natural order Rubica and tribe Cospera, natives of tropical South America. It derives its name from the town of Angostura, where it is a considerable article of commerce. It was first brought to England in 1788. It is used in medicine as a remedy for weakness digestion, diarrhea, dysentery, and fevers. I'm going to pause for a second, and I believe I've tried an oil like this. Um, Anyway, I I think, anyway. If if memory serves, it's been a while. It is tonic and stimulant. The most important of the trees producing it is the Gilepio aficillanus, which grows upon the mountains of Colombia and near the Orinoco. It is a tree of 12 to 20 feet high and 3 to 5 feet in diameter, Having a gray bark, triophyllite leaves with oblong leaflets about 10 inches long, which, when fresh, have the odor of tobacco, and flowers about an inch long in racemes, white, hairy, and fragrant. The bark contains a chemical substance not yet sufficiently examined called angustorian, cusperin, or galopine, to which its medicinal efficiency is ascribed. It is supposed that a variety of... Of it is produced by Galapia casporia, called by some Monplandia trifolotia, a majestic tree of 60 to 80 feet in height. Ooh, that sounds really cool. I would like to see that. With fragrant trifoliate leaves more than two feet long, it is believed to be one of the most valuable for, uh, for refuges, but its use is at present very limited and has indeed in some countries of Europe been prohibited In consequence of its frequent alteration of the poisonous bark of the Strychnos Nux Vomica, ooh, that does not sound good, Uh, or the substitution of that bark for it, this poisonous bark is sometimes called false Angostura bark. It differs from the true Angostura bark in having no smell in its much greater weight and compactness, in its inner surface being incapable of separation into small lemini, and the effects of which are produced upon it by acids and other tests, particularly in its outer crust, being rendered dark green or blackish by nitric acid, while that of the true Angor, Angus, uh, Angusora bark is rendered slightly orange-red. It's okay, so number 11, and yes, people are always substituting the real thing um, for something fake and always be on the lookout for that. Um, that's one one thing about the Christian Warrior Notebooks. Uh, one of the reasons why I've got the Christian Warrior Notebooks. You know, always be be on the lookout. You know, know know what you believe. Don't uh, don't settle for the false stuff going around. And that that's a good lesson right there. Um, don't settle for the false stuff. You know, get the real thing. So number eleven on go on go i believe i mispronounced it earlier my apologies on that uh, but again i've said this in previous podcasts i didn't say it at the beginning of this one but if you are new um one of the funny things is uh that i enjoy is i mispronounce words all the time i've never heard these words spoken out loud um, i was always a silent reader so if you've never heard a word spoken out loud. I uh, just, you just do the best you can possibly do. Um, but I have a good time. I know I mispronounce a lot of words and you feel free to laugh at me. I am perfectly fine with that because it is, it's pretty funny. Um, and if you know how to pr- pronounce it and you want to give me lessons by George, you go right on ahead. Email me Oaks at protonmail.com. My email address is in the description below along with TheOakTreeJourneys.com and uh, my Teespring store and my Lulu uh, address for the Christian Warrior Notebooks. So definitely drop me a line. If you want to teach me how to pronounce these words, I am all for it. Um, If you know how to say them, I will be very grateful to learn how to to, uh, pronounce these properly. But in the meantime, feel free to laugh. Uh, as I mispronounce lots of words. Um, but here we go. Angoulême, capital of the department of Charent, France, and formerly of the province of Angoumois, it is on the Charente and has narrow and crooked streets, a number of paper mills, manufacturers of woolen stuffs, linen, and earthenware, etc. It possesses a royal college, a museum of natural history, and several other useful institutions. In the center of the town stands the remnant of the ancient castle of Angoulême, in which was born the celebrated Marguerite of Navarre, the authoress of the Héptameron and other works. Navarre, I'm sorry, Marguerite of Navarre. The railway from Paris to Bordeaux passes through it. Much saffron and wine are produced in the neighborhood. The province of Angolame, excuse me, I'm sorry, Angamoy was in early times a county, but the heir of it in the beginning of the 14th century being an adherent of the English, Philip the Fair took possession of it and became an appendage of younger branches of the royal family. It was made a duchy by Francis I and was sometimes bestowed upon natural sons of the French kings. Charles de Valois, Duke of Angoulême, a natural son of Charles IX, was a distinguished general in the reigns of Henry IV and Louis XIII. Population in 1891 was 36,690, and in 1901, 37,650. And that was number 11. Number 12, we are finally... Going to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And this is a person. Um, it He is Angoulême, Charles de Valois, Duc de. So, Charles de Valois, Angoulême, Duc de. He was a French general and politician. Born Fayette D- uh, Duffing, April the 28th of 1573. He died September the 24th in 1650. A natural son of Charles IX and Marie Touchette, in his early career, he was known as the Comte de d'Evron. He served in the French army under Henry IV, but in 1601 became involved in the plot against the king, centering about Catherine Henriette, Marquis de Brunel, the king's mistress, and his own half-sister. Released after confessing his part in the conspiracy, he continued to intrigue against the monarch and in 1605 was sentenced to imprisonment for life. Louis XIII freed him in 1616 and subsequently reinstated him in the army and employed him on diplomatic missions. He received his dukedom in 1619. From 1643, he lived in retirement. Okay, and with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our last set of five encyclopedia—excuse me, I'm sorry—the four, uh, four encyclopedia entries are Anglo. Uh, let's see, Angolame, comma Louis and Antoine, uh, Antoine de Bourbon, Duke de. Uh, so another name. And I misspelled uh, it it's on the names list or the entry list. Let me fix that. Angra, Angra, Apicamia, Bequen, uh, and Angri. So number 13 is a person. So it, he is Anglame, Anglame, comma Louis Antoine de Bourbon, Duc de. So, Louis Antoine de Bourbon, Bourbon, Duc de Angoulême. <laughs> um, and again, my, my apologies on that. Um, but he lived from 1775, August 6th, until 1844, June the 3rd. He was born in Versailles, eldest son of Charles X of France, and Dauphin during his father's reign. He retired from France with his father at the commencement of the Revolution and spent some time in military studies at Turin. In August 1792, he entered Germany at the head of a body of French immigrants, but his ill success and unfitness for military command led to his retirement with his father at Edinburgh. Until 1814, he continued in exile from France, wandering from one place to another on the continent and laterally, resident with the other members of his family in England. On the entrance of the Allies into France, he appeared at the British headquarters at saint Jean de luz and thence issued a proclamation to the French army. He entered Bordeaux under protection of the British on March 12th and made liberal promises in the name of his uncle Louis the 14th. No, I'm sorry, the 18th. the 18th, among which was that of complete religious liberty. He was again in the south when Napoleon returned from Elba. He was appointed lieutenant of the kingdom and hastened with such forces as he could collect to oppose the emperor, but although he obtained some advantages at first, he was soon deserted by his troops, was for some days detained a prisoner, and at last sent away in a Swedish merchant vessel in Barcelona. After the second restoration, he was sent by Louis the 14th Excuse me, I'm sorry. I don't know why I keep saying the 14th. The 18th, to the South Provinces to suppress the political and religious movements there. And in 1823, he led the French army into Spain to put an end to the Constitution. A man of phlegmatic disposition and mean abilities, he was in all political matters a tool of the ultra-royalists and the priests. So, wow, even in the early 1900s, people were called tools. When the revolution took place in July of 1830, he signed with his father an abdication in favor of his nephew, the Duke de Bordeaux, and when the Chambers declared the family of Charles X to have forfeited the throne, he accompanied him into exile in Holyrood to Prague and to Gors, where he died. In 1799, he had married his cousin, Louis the uh, sixteenth daughter, Marie Therese Charlotte, 1778 to 1851, is when she lived. Okay, before we move on to uh, entry number 14, uh, I just want to add that if anyone is in East Tennessee, on uh, February the 5th, we are having a meal after church. So, February the 5th is a Sunday, of course. And that is um, at Mountain View Church of Christ. So if you are in the area, it's Mountain View Church of Christ. The address is 584 Mountain View Road, Bluff City, Tennessee, 37618. So again, we are having a meal uh, after church services. And that's usually a little after noon. Um, That's noon Eastern time. Services start at 11 a.m. Sunday school uh, starts at 10 a.m. And again, that's Eastern time, and if you are in the area uh, and you're looking for a church to go to and just some fellowship meal, we are having a fellowship meal on that Sunday, which is February the 5th, and that's Mountain View Church of Christ, and the address is 584 Mountain View Road, Bluff City, Tennessee, 37618. So I have not decided what I'm going to make. Um, my cabinet's have not told me yet, Uh, so I may have to get creative, but uh, there it is, so if you, if you want a place to go, there you go, number 14, Angra, Angra, capital of Azores, a seaport beautifully situated at the head of a deep bay on the south coast of the island of Tercia. It is a station for ships between Portugal and Brazil and the East Indies, but the harbor, though the best in the island, is very much exposed. It is the seat of the Portuguese government, governor-general of the Azores, and the bishop is well-built, with broad streets but dirty, strongly fortified and protected by a citadel, and contains a military college and arsenal, a cathedral, etc., there is a considerable export of wine, cheese, honey, and flax. It, uh, it was the asylum of the Portuguese re- Regency from 1830 to 1833. The population in 1890 was 11,281. And 10 years later, in 1900, it actually dropped instead of increased. We see that from time to time. Uh, 10,843 is what it dropped down to. Number 15. Angra, Pacania, a bay on the southwest coast of Africa, latitude 26 degrees, 27 feet south, longitude 15 degrees east. It gives name to the southern littoral of Great Navacoland, extending 200 miles from latitude 26 degrees south to the Orange River or Cape Colony, and reaching 90 miles inland, a sandy, waterless region, but rich apparently in metals and with a healthful climate. In 1883, it was ceded by a Namaqua chieftain in Luderitz, a Bremen merchant, and next year it was taken under German protection with all the coast to the north as far as Cape Frio except Wolvich Bay, which belongs to England. The chief settlement is Kenya, which has a good harbor. And number 16, which is our very last. Encyclopedia entry of this week. And Angri Angri is a town of South Italy, province of Salerno, 17 miles northwest from Salerno, not far from the Naples and uh, Nicarra Railway. The surrounding country abounds in vineyards and cotton plantations. The population in the early 1900s was 7,920. So there we go. That we had 16 entries uh, to this week, and I appreciate your patience while I'm getting back into the groove of uh, doing these week uh, weekly, rather than uh, every other month or so, uh, because we do want to finish the encyclopedia uh, sometime before before I die. Right? Uh, at least that's my hope is that we finish it sometime before I die, but uh lord willing we will and uh we'll, we'll uh, see now before you go if you want to stick around you don't have to but i do have two books i'll review uh after our next break and then it'll be our last break uh but you can go ahead and drop off uh after uh if we go through some of the uh the things so just a reminder uh Notebooks, if you are looking for a notebook, a Christian warrior notebook, um, or even a prayer journal, it's a 52-week prayer journal, so it will last you all year. And depending on how much you write or how little you write, there are three different options. Um, and there are different prices. So the higher it is, the more paper it has. Um, that was determined um, by Lulu. I can only go... Uh, so low. I wanted to make it a lot less, but you know, I'm dictated under Lulu's rules. And that's lulu.com is where you can find it. Um, Zuf, Z is in zebra, U is in umbrella, P is in Peter, H is in Henry. Second word, Zerushadeh. Uh, Z is in zebra, U is in umbrella, R is in Robert, I is in igloo, S is in Sam, H is in Henry, A is in apple, D is in David, D is in David, A is in apple, I is in igloo. And the link is in the description below, or you can simply go to my website, which is theoaktreejourneys.com. And it's the home page, the very first page that comes up. There's a little scroll or a ticker or whatever uh, I've got it set up as now that rolls through the different books and just select that one and it'll take you right to the web, to the website uh, for those. And you can review all of those. Um, I'm pretty happy about the uh, prayer journal. It did take a long time to work on. So I hope you enjoy it. If you do get it, um, let me know what you think. Uh, rate it on Lulu. Uh, don't have any ratings right now, so it would be great if you did rate it. Um, I mean, if you like it, if you don't like it, I want to hear that too. You know, I'm I'm a big girl. I can handle criticism. So, if you don't like it, let me know. I will not make any apologies um, for uh, being biblically correct. I will apologize for anything. I've got uh, any inaccuracies that I may have made. Um... So anything that's accurate that you just don't like because it's accurate, I'm not going to apologize for. But I will apologize for any inaccuracies if you find any. Um, Which, I'm human. I make lots and lots of mistakes. uh, So that very well could be. Um, But with that, uh, I will bid you, those of you who do not want to stick around for the book review, I will bid you adieu. And I hope you have a very blessed week. And thank you again for joining, and we will be right back after the short break if you want to stick around for the book review. Thank you so much for sticking with me uh, for these two books. These are children's books. Uh, They are for younger readers, um, so if they can't quite read, they would be uh, in the... Real little kids section, um, maybe just learning how to read. Um, not quite on their own yet. Um, but the first one I'll review is called Princess Unlimited, and it's by Jacob Sager uh, Weinstein, illustrated by Resa Figueroa. And I did promise I would review a few newer ones, so this is a newer one. Uh, the copyright is last year, so 2021. Uh that's the text copyright by Jacob Sager Weinstein and illustration uh, copyright at uh 2021 by Resa Figueroa. So I thought it was interesting. Um I used to growing up. Um uh, I used to pretend to uh rescue princesses, um, uh, the princess in distress, so I would be the knight in shining armor, trying to rescue princess. So I find it interesting now that. A lot of, uh, books and media have princesses rescuing themselves. There's no longer that, um, I thought it was fun. Uh, you know, the damsel in distress uh, thing going on, but... I guess people got tired of that trope. (laughs) Which, you know, that's what a a trope is. You you can get tired of it. Um, but I thought it was an interesting little story. I I liked it. Um... the parents were kind of silly but it's a kids story so i didn't mind that so much um especially at the end when when the parents i won't give it away but the parents do grow uh my i have i usually have a problem with if the parents or the adult figures are just shown as idiots and just stupid um and, and ignorant, and they don't know what they're doing, and the kids are all wise and all-knowing and all-powerful. And that really gets on my nerves. Um, because that's not true to life at all, by any means. I There might be some silly adults out there, but, you know, generally children are not wiser than than an adult. Generally, you know. And I realize there are some exceptions, but there's something to wisdom, age and wisdom. Um, knowledge is not the same as wisdom. And book knowledge is definitely not the same as wisdom. But, yeah, I, I like the illustrations. It's really cute. Uh, I love that there's a little doggy in here, too. And the, there's a little scullery maid. And it's a really cute story. Um, I have to say that, uh, that it's just really cute. And I think, um, growing up, I would have enjoyed it because there's a dragon in it. Um, you know, it's quite, it's, it's clever. I, it has a new approach to how to deal with problems. Um, so, so yeah, I thought it was really cute and I would recommend reading it. Um, and the second one I want to review, uh, actually goes hand in hand with the quote of the month by John Cumming. And that may be why I picked the quote, because I read the book first, and then I found the quote later. Uh, So just to recap with John Cummings' uh, quote, uh, he was an English preacher, He lived from 1807 to 1881, and he said, Minute events are the hinges on which magnificent results turn. In a watch, the smallest link, chain, ratchet, cog, or crank is as essential as the mainspring itself. If one fall out, the whole will stand still. So I just love that because it does uh, tie in with this other book. It's called Olivia Wrapped in Vines by Maud Nabu Villeneuve, illustrated by Sandra Dumas. Uh, It's a cute book. Uh, It is about anxiety. And what's really interesting, I wasn't sure if I was how I would react to it, because, um, how much anxiety do children really have, you know, is my first thought, but then, as I got to thinking, I was like, wait a minute, um, I had a lot of anxiety as a child, I had a lot of depression as a child, I was made fun of all the time, and my way, my mother helped me deal with that by writing, uh, she she helped me dictate my, I dictated my very first story and she typed it out for me. So, yes, children do have anxiety. Um, I'm not a child anymore, so sometimes I forget that. But I do have a niece and nephews and they, you know, they've had their fair share of issues that, that have gone on. I don't know if this book would have helped me growing up, um, but it definitely would not have hurt. So if you have any children that are dealing with any anxiety, um, or anything like that, I won't read it, um, but I would recommend this. Now, the, the teacher is kind of silly, and the pictures are kind of silly, and it is, it is a really silly, you know, it, it, it's silly pictures, and I do like the teacher in it, and uh, just how everything's portrayed. I think it would be good, um. Now, whether or not it would have helped me personally, uh, writing helped me out a lot. But every child is different, and it would have at least helped to know that I wasn't the only one feeling that way. So, if, again, if you do have a, chi- a little a child, a little, I don't know what I was trying to say, I think I was trying to say kid. If if there is a little kid in your life who is experiencing some anxiety or fears, um, just afraid to talk out, uh, then this book is definitely for them. I found the teacher silly because my teachers actually caused my anxiety um, growing up. I, I did not have very good elementary school teachers, um, and it continued on through middle school. I have really good high school teachers, and then I had amazing, amazing professors at Milligan College, um, well, university now. Uh, so it, it does get better uh, if you do, <laughs> if you have poor teachers that you just are just awful. And really should not be teaching children. Um, it does get better. <laughs> but I think I would have done a lot better had I had a teacher like the one listed in this book. Um, because, yeah, again, the teachers caused my anxiety. Other other kids did too, but, but the teachers did a lot. They did not help. Um, but enough about that. So yes, I would recommend the book, both of these books. This one is Olivia Wrapped in Vines, and I'm and I'm so sorry I'm mispronouncing it, but it's Maud Nephew Villeneuve, illustrations by Sandra Dumas. Oh, it's translated by Charles Samard. So it's a translation. I did not realize that. Um, when was it published? Is a good question. I noticed Some of the publishing information is now listed in the back instead of the front. Um, Okay, so this is copyrighted in 2022. So it is is brand spanking new last year. I was going to say this year, but we're just now in 2023. So this is a fairly new book. So I promised you I would review more new books because the... First one I reviewed, um, yeah, if you want to hear that review, uh, go to episode 83. I believe that's when I reviewed it, and, uh, stick to the end, and my review's at the very end, just like these reviews are at the very end. Um, but yeah, I like the illustrations in this one, too. And, again, uh, Princess Unlimited, I do recommend, and Olivia Wrapped in Vines, I recommend. So there you go. And I'm going to end this with the John Cumming quote again. And I just want to remind you that if you do have feelings of anxiety or worthlessness or, uh, or that people, you know, do people really care about you? Yes, they do. And if, if the people around you don't say it, be the type of person you want to be surrounded by. You know, if you want to be surrounded by a happy person, a positive person, and you want to be told positive things all the time, become that person. And what and what you put out into the world, I, I've heard this a lot, and it's absolutely true. What you put out into the world, you get back. You, if you put out negative energy, if you're, uh, and I'm not saying it's it's your fault or anything, but if you are, if you've got those uh, automatic negative thoughts going on all the time, then yeah, and, um, that can have an impact on it, uh, unfortunately. You know, unfortunately it can. So just, uh, just try to uh, change your way of thinking and start with something small. Start with a small act of kindness. A smile at somebody. Smile at yourself in the mirror. That actually works wonders. Smile at yourself in the mirror every single morning. When you get up and then at night when you go to bed. And that will help out tremendously. And each each day try to do something a little nicer and a little nicer. And you'll you'll find that things uh, may not change uh, your surroundings. You can't, you know, there are some, that, some things you just can't change. You can't change other people's attitudes um, or their reactions to things. Uh, but you can change your reaction and your actions. Um and essentially, eventually, um, you might be able to change them um, to a more positive outlook. But just know that, that you are worth something, um, and you're definitely worth everything to God. God sacrificed His Son for you, and this is not going to be a preaching thing, um, I promise. But if you do feel down and you just can't smile at yourself, know that God loves you enough that he sacrificed his son to save you. And with that, um, let me go ahead and read John Cummings' quote one more time. And then I'll let you go. Minute events are the hinges on which magnificent results turn. In a watch, the smallest link, chain, ratchet, cog, or crank is as essential as the main spring itself. If one fall out, the hole will stand still. So with that... I hope you have a wonderful, blessed week, and if you want to reach out to me, you certainly can. My email address is mandyokes at protonmail.com, it is in the description below, Uh, so if you want to reach out, feel free. Uh, But with that, have a blessed, blessed week, and I bid you adieu.